In the beginning, we were created and designed to live and walk with God. But humanity traded the truth for a lie. We traded the glory and goodness of God for the world and our own ways. Separated from God, we were stuck in a pit of our own making. But Jesus broke through. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he rescued us from our sin, shame, and pain. Jesus shows us and teaches us how to live a new life, full life, a life that is upside down compared to what we are used to. His upside down, or rather, right side up ways are beautiful and perfect. He empowers us to live his mission, turning this upside down world right side up for his kingdom, his power, and his glory. Okay, well, officially, welcome to the best sermon ever. Uh, if you are newer with us, my name is Brian, and uh, sorry to disappoint you right out of the gate, but this will not be the best sermon ever, as I am certainly not the best preacher ever. However, I'm here to tell you that I do know who that best preacher is and where to find the best sermon ever. Uh, we actually find it uh, in the Bible, in the biography of the person of Jesus, the book of Matthew. Uh, that sermon is recorded there in chapters five, six, and seven, and that's where we're gonna be hanging out here for a number of weeks. And that sermon is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it is... Uh, uncontested as the best sermon ever. And we've kind of gone all out around here uh, to celebrate that reality and to share that. You might have noticed maybe some billboards around town talking about the best sermon you uh, might have received or even handed out to one of those ominous little black square cards uh, that is pointing to this. And uh, the reason we're doing this is because we actually believe not that this is just the best sermon ever, but that the overflow of this best sermon ever actually leads to the best kind of life. Like we actually believe what Jesus has to say in his sermon is the best possible life that we can lead if we take him up on it. And we're not alone in this. Uh, it's interesting that the people throughout history, uh, you know, people who would be way more popular than, than maybe any of us in the room, you've got you know, political leaders, US presidents quoting and referencing uh, this particular sermon, uh, artists and authors, even, even other religious leaders from other religions reference and quote this sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, because there's this sense of potential and power that is resting within it. Uh, one of those quotes from one of those people, uh, President Harry S. Truman, uh, on the heels of World War II, he said this. He said, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the sermon on the mount. That's a pretty big claim, and uh, it definitely gets my interest and attention as to something that's worth checking out. And so while we definitely believe that Jesus has the best sermon ever, and the Sermon on the Mount is the best sermon ever, interestingly, it's actually not his first sermon ever. 
that in the book of Matthew, we actually see it as the second sermon that we find in the book of Matthew in chapter five that is actually preceded by another sermon in chapter four. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, it's chapters five, six, and seven, and would take you uh, probably about 15 minutes to read out loud, but Jesus' first sermon ever is actually only one sentence and only half a verse. It only take mere seconds to preach. And uh, I know what you're probably already thinking. It's like, okay, Brian, we agree. You're not the best preacher ever, but it would seem, according to the clock, looking at Jesus, you might be able to be a better preacher if you maybe followed some of his uh, ideas on maybe sermon length. I don't know. Uh, it just takes me longer to get the words out, so I'm just not that good, so we're just gonna roll with it anyway. But Jesus' first sermon is what we must first understand in order to really understand his second sermon, his Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus' first sermon ever, his one sentence, half of our sermon, is simply this. He says, to repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is Jesus' first sermon. It says, from that time on, so Jesus' ministry is beginning, chapter four, it says, from that time on, he began to preach, and his first sermon ever was simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is here. And that's it. That's it, that is the sermon, and that is what we have to understand in order to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And the key word here really is this word, repent. Now repent, that might conjure up all kinds of thoughts and ideas about what that might mean, but what it actually means, the word repent simply means to change your mind. That's the most literal, uh, you could say, definition of that word, to change your mind. And here's the reality, that throughout Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, He's gonna challenge our minds. He's gonna challenge our thinking, our approach, uh, and it's gonna challenge us to change our mind on some things according to what he has to say. And it's so important that as we step into this that we understand the order of how this works for Jesus and thus for us. And that we don't start with, you could say what we might think, uh, you know, like okay, Jesus is gonna talk about a lot of things we should do, or maybe different ways we should behave in our life, if you will. But it doesn't start there. It actually starts with the Holy Spirit, who first convicts our heart by revealed truth in his word, convicts our heart, and then from there, out of, it says in Acts 2 that we're cut to the heart, and then what do we do? We repent. We repent, we change our mind about these things, and then that plays out in literally the direction we are living our lives. Some people might call it a paradigm, like my paradigm, my way, my direction in life was going my own way or the world's way, but because of what the Holy Spirit has done in my heart and what I'm choosing to do, I'm heading God's way. I'm heading a new direction, which then, at the end of this chain, is then the natural overflow into my behavior versus what I think we tend to do is we start with this and try to work our way backwards. And I would say this, I bet for many of us, like maybe if you are new to the whole church thing or maybe you've even been a little hesitant to check out the whole church thing, it's probably because in the end, maybe you just felt like you didn't see a whole lot of change here in people's lives. Like from the outside looking in, you, you see church people uh, like us and you say, man, they sure do a whole lot of church, but if I'm honest, as I look at their lives, I don't see a whole lot of change. A whole lot of church, but sometimes it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of change. And I'll say to those of us who've maybe been doing this for a while, maybe you're like, hey, I'm kind of equally as frustrated. Like, you know, I've done a lot of church. I've heard a lot of sermons. I've read a lot of Bible. I've prayed a lot of prayers. And like, I'm frustrated because I read these things. I know that this is how my life should be, but it seems like 
So little change even given all the church, the sermons, the prayers, the Bible, etc. And I think a lot of that is because we get the order of operations, to use a math term, backwards. We focus on this rather than recognizing it's not us, it's all the work of God working in our hearts, minds, direction, and then our behavior. It is not behavior modification, it is a heart modification by the Holy Spirit that then overflows into the life that we lead. Okay, And so with that idea in mind, as we change our, again, conviction of the Holy Spirit in our heart as we move through this, what is it that you could say we're repenting toward? Like, what are we changing our direction toward? Well, according to Jesus in his one sermon, it is to the kingdom of heaven. We repent and turn toward the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Or maybe, maybe breaking that down, what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is simply a place where the king reigns. That's all a kingdom is. A kingdom is a place where a king reigns. And here's what's true of every single one of us in the room. Uh, No matter, again, whether you're brand new to all this, you've been doing this a long time, every single one of us share in common absolutely the reality that we live in a kingdom. We live in a kingdom where there is a king ruling the world that we're in. The question really is only, who is your king that is determining your kingdom? Like, are, are you, if you're just honest, like, are you just the king? Are you the one who's in charge of your world and your little kingdom? Or, as we're gonna discover that Jesus is gonna assess, is it Jesus who is in charge? Is it, as the Bible says, the king of kings who is in charge of the kingdom that he calls us to be a part of, to turn toward. And so with these ideas in mind, it's interesting, I think about as we turn to you know, God's way from our way, as we explore what it looks like to live in his kingdom rather than our own, that if we let the king, the king of kings, be the king rather than being the king of our own little world. Uh, it's really interesting to me, even as I think about like, you know, the authors and the artists and uh, you know, the political leaders and the presidents and even the idea of like, other religions, religious leaders quoting the Sermon on the Mount, that as they quote pieces of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the underbelly of all that is just this reality that, that just because they're quoting pieces and parts of the Sermon on the Mount doesn't mean they've necessarily surrendered to the author of the Sermon on the Mount, that that might not be their king and their kingdom. Because when we, you could say, you know, want to pick parts and pieces of the sermon and subtract out of that the actual author, the king behind that, then we rob and compromise the whole reality of how the Sermon on the Mount works. That um, we live in a world, you could say, where people want pieces and parts of what Jesus has to say, little bits of his Sermon on the Mount. Like, we all want to live in a world where there's more kindness, a world where Jesus calls us to treat people with dignity, a a world where generosity leads out, a a life where, uh, Jesus will say later on, that you can live like free of worry when you have his perspective. But when you subtract out of that the source, the king and his kingdom, then we, again, are powerless to live in the reality that he paints in his teachings. And so let's see how you could say the king of kings lays out his kingdom, a kingdom uh, that, as our little video suggests, shows us and teaches us how to live a new and full life, a life that is upside down to what we are used to, and thus then is actually right side up, okay? 
And so we see this in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, his sermon is this, blessed. Blessed, that word, it literally means flourishing or or what we're suggesting here, what Jesus is suggesting, like this approach is the best life. Blessed, flourishing, this is the best life for you. And Jesus said, this is what that life looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as we read through these eight Beatitudes, these eight blessed R's, we must recognize that these are not a list of attributes that you in your own right, your own might, are able to accomplish. This is not a a list of if this, then that. Uh, Like if I do this, then I'm guaranteed that. It's not not like a checklist, like a shopping list, like a grocery list. Like if I can say, you know, if I'm pure in heart, then I'll see God. I mean, can anyone here like raise their hand and just say, yep, check, pure in heart, got that covered here, off my list today. No, I mean, I think the pride that it would take just to lift your hand on that is probably the most assured sign that you have not accomplished that in your life. (laughs) And so what is Jesus trying to say here? I mean, if this is something that we can't accomplish, we can't check off, you know, Jesus commands, uh, you know, these suggestions of, or they're not suggestions. I mean, this is not the suggestion on the mount. This is Jesus' sermon on the mount. These are things he's commanding us to do. But yet if we can't fully achieve them, and they seem unachievable, what is it that we are supposed to do then with them? Well, Oswald Chambers, uh, the author of the devotional classic, Our Utmost for His Highest, he says it this way. He says, if Jesus is a teacher only, if he's only a teacher, then all he can do is tantalize us by erecting a standard that we cannot come anywhere near. In other words, if Jesus is not God, if he is not the king of kings, if he is not the one who supernaturally empowers us, if Jesus is just merely a teacher, then all he can do is teach us and tantalize us by giving us a standard that we cannot come anywhere near. But, but if by, sorry, I'm knocking my thing here. But if by being born again from above, we know him first as savior, then we know that he did not just come to teach us only. He did not just come to teach us only, and I I love this line. He came to make us what he teaches us we should be. Do you catch that? That supernatural, he came to make us 
what he is going to teach us we should be. It's him doing the work. As Oswald Chambers goes on, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life that we live when the Holy Spirit, remember that diagram, the Holy Spirit encircling all of this, when the Holy Spirit of God is having his way within us. You see, the way that the Sermon on the Mount starts, it's not a checklist. It's not an if this, then that. It is actually It's like a bio, like it's like a description. It is the character and the nature of a life that is surrendered to the king of kings living in his kingdom. It is a description of the life of what we call the gospel. The good news of Jesus come into a person's life And that is a life that's completely encircled by the Holy Spirit, as our diagram said, as uh, the scriptures say, has the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, or as Oswald Chambers went on to say, is having his way within us. You see, Jesus in this kind of life, this blessed, this flourishing, uh, this full life throughout the Beatitudes, this is what he's showing us, this way of life and how it looks. Let's see how he unfolds this. Again, look at verse three. As Jesus says, blessed are, he says, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what repenting and turning toward. We're turning toward the kingdom of heaven. And how do we do that? By recognizing that we are, you could say, broke in spirit. We're poor in spirit. We are, you could say, helpless to help ourselves. That these are the beginning points of the gospel. That the good news of Jesus starts with the bad news that we've got nothing to offer. We can't earn our way toward God. We can't do enough good. Like we have an impoverished poor, spiritual, what the Bible says, sinful, we've gone our own way state. And we are then, when we recognize that we've got nothing to offer, in a position kind of at the bottom to say, okay, it is only God that can lift me up. That I'm broken, I'm poor in spirit, and I am convicted of this in my heart. And so then, as we said, I repent. I change my mind, and I head a different direction, receiving the gift of this new life through the gift of Jesus. That's what we get, again, of that one-sentence sermon that we repent and we come near that kingdom of heaven that has come near. And so Jesus, he then builds on this idea in verse four. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So contextually, this is speaking to actually how we mourn sin. We are saddened by our, our sin. We're saddened by the reality that we've gone our own way and instead of going God's way. So we recognize that, we confess that, we admit that, that none of us have it together, so it's okay, we can all share in that confession. Uh, And then with that, here's the good news, here's the gospel, we are then, quote, comforted by what? But not an idea, not a feeling, not not anything warm and fuzzy, you are, like, we are tangibly comforted by the fact that we are forgiven, that we are forgiven by the grace of God. I love the way the Amplified Bible, um, which is a Bible that really kind of adds extra context to some of the verses to give us an understanding of what it's getting at, uh, uh, interprets the same uh, verse. It says, blessed or forgiven, refreshed by God's grace, that's what it means to be blessed, are those who mourn over their sins and repent for, they will be forgiven, for they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. I love that, that the comfort comes in the reality that the burden of sin and its consequences is lifted. Verse five, the way this plays out, Jesus says, is by being meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meek here does not mean weak. 
just because it rhymes doesn't mean it means the same thing. Uh, better said, really, meek is this idea of, of, of humility, of, of humble surrender. The word is actually connected to the idea of like a bit in the mouth of a horse, that as the rider is able to control uh, and be the master over the direction and the pace of the horse. And so with this idea in mind, that meekness, that humble surrender is giving full control to the direction of our lives to the master, to the king of kings and his kingdom. And it goes on to say that you will inherit not just this temporary earth, it's actually the reality that we inherit, it says in the scriptures, a whole new heaven, a whole new earth, ultimately in the eternal realities of what we have in Jesus. It's, a, it's, it's, it's heavenly realities. It says from there that when we do this, when in meekness we humbly surrender to the king and his kingdom ways, and we get a taste of that, like we start to experience this in our life, uh, that we will discover how good it is and we'll actually find ourselves wanting more of it. We'll want to, uh, it says, we will hunger and thirst for more. That's what the next verse says, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this kind of life, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I don't know about you, but without all of this, like, that's not my natural state. Like, my natural state is to hunger and thirst for, like, Doritos and Dr. Pepper, you know? Uh, things and other things that are all about me, my own self-interest, my own selfish ways, my own, uh, you know, just everything self. But the more I feast on and drink up Jesus' will and ways, I find that the more I catch a hold of it, I hunger and thirst for more of it. That's how it works. It's like this, like this snowball effect that the Holy Spirit does within us, that we kind of build on it, and it builds within our lives, and it swells, and it grows, and it becomes more and more of what we get is what more and more of what we hunger and thirst of uh, in our lives. And really, that's kind of how the rest of the Beatitudes roll out. It just shows how when this snowball effect of hungering and thirsting for what God is doing, it just kind of, it's contagious in our lives and in others. As it goes on in verse seven, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is such a through line of who God is and what we're called to be living in this kingdom life. You know, Jesus, uh, later in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he, he gives what's called, what we've called uh, the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, uh, he, says, uh, or, or he says for us to pray, Lord, forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins. There's lots of ways to translate that. Um, as we have been forgiven. Help us to be merciful just as we have been shown mercy. Uh, that in light of God's ultimate forgiveness that we have received through Jesus, we then only then are empowered to forgive the kind of debts that people have incurred on us. I mean, you, can't, you know this. You cannot forgive the measure of things that we need to forgive people for in our lives on our own. There is no way to do that. Like when we think about um, the emotional debts, uh, sometimes the physical debts that have been charged against us wrongly from other people. The only way we get to the place where we can forgive that kind of reality is in the bigger reality of the ultimate forgiveness and the depth to which we understand we have been forgiven in Christ. And when we live there, we do, there's kind of this saying, I love it, simply put, that when we understand this as forgiven people, forgiven people forgive people. Blessed are the merciful, for then too we shall be shown mercy. It's a big cycle that all works together. Um, and then from there, verse eight, we see that what ends up becoming of us is that we become blessed by being pure 
and more pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again, as we said earlier, we don't get to put a check mark as pure in heart, but it is only God who changes our hearts. The Holy Spirit's work within us. Some other places in scripture that emphasize this, the prophet Ezekiel, on behalf of God, says, uh, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I, God, will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It is only the work of God that can do these things inside of us that then play out outside of us. And then from there, we see that playing out, verse nine, outside of us, verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, when it comes to peace, this is way more than, you know, that peaceful, easy feeling. My daughter after church, she's like, dad, you can't do that on stage. You're you're not allowed to sing. And everyone said amen, so... Yeah, it's more than a peaceful, easy feeling as the song by the Eagles might suggest. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.20. says that through him, through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He's reconciled us to God, a relationship with God that's overcome our sin and separation, and that is peace. That he has made peace in everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross should we receive it. And then as we receive it, as we live in this eternal peace uh, or peace is being reconciled to God, we now are representatives of that. You could say we're ambassadors of that peace, helping others to be reconciled into a relationship with God through Jesus. We're going to talk about that next week as we talk what it means to be salt and light, to be ambassadors and representatives to those to receive what we have received. You could say that as we've been saved, that uh, as ones who have been rescued, like immediately as one who's rescued, you are now part of the rescuing team. We have a responsibility to live that out and a reflection to others. Uh, The apostle uh, Paul says it this way, that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal right through us. And so Paul says, we implore you, and thus, like Paul, we implore others on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. See, all of this, these Beatitudes, this Sermon on the Mount, as they show us this best life ever, as Jesus would go on to say later, like life and life to the full in John 10.10, It comes really at the end with this bit of irony that the last beatitude, the last blessed are, says of all things, verse 10, and blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember the first sermon? We're all about the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom and the king's ways. Blessed are those who are persecuted, though, like like really, like the blessed, flourishing, best life ever is a life that has persecution. And he's like, you know, maybe this is where we say, well, persecution maybe doesn't mean what we thought persecution used to mean, but what it really means. But, it, but to ensure that we would not be confused on the matter, Jesus on this one actually interprets it for us. As he goes on to say, this is what I mean by this, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and even falsely say all kinds of things and evil against you because of me, because you follow King Jesus. But, verse 12, rejoice, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were 
before you. And so this is the truth straight from Jesus. Uh, I love the way our family ministries pastor, Heather Vance, says this almost every week uh, with our students, with our teens in student life. She reminds our students on a regular basis, it is the best life, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the easiest life. It is absolutely the best life, but that doesn't always mean it's necessarily the easiest life. And I think about that, like if we're honest with ourselves, again, even if you're like totally new to the whole church thing and you look at your life uh, and you look at like, you know, your greatest growth moments, your greatest achievements and accomplishments, like, like anywhere you got better or excelled in this life, I would suspect it probably was not a direct result of things being easier in your life. Look, if you wanna take Jesus up on this kind of life, that starts with a changed heart that then turns into changing your mind, repenting to the direction of the king of kings and his kingdom, then you should expect that as you go against the grains of this world, you could say, that if you take seriously God's will and ways as revealed in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Jesus' word and the rest of God's word in the Bible, that as you live in a world where relative truth rules and reigns, you know, like you do you, uh, you know, your truth, my truth, that when we live in a world where relative truth rules in spite of trying to live a life under God's absolute truth, then you should expect that people are going to disagree with you. They are going to insult you, that you will be persecuted. And I'd say this, that if you're not, like if you're not at least occasionally getting splinters from going against the grain of this world's ways, that if occasionally you don't bump up against some things that are different in the way that you're pursuing life versus the way that the rest of the world is pursuing life around you, then you might have to ask yourself, like, who is my king? And and whose kingdom am I actually living for? See, if you take Jesus up on his best life, even when, I would say especially when, it's not the easiest, then be reminded the promise of his word that when you're shunned, when you're shut out, when you're made fun of, that when you are ridiculed for aligning yourself with the king of kings and his kingdom, verse 12, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, it's okay, because he is with you and your reward is in heaven and you are, again, sharing, as it says, with those who've gone before you, others who have followed Jesus and have been persecuted for. In fact, it actually says in the scriptures that you, uh, Peter goes on to say that you actually get to share in the sufferings of Christ, who, as we know, experienced the ultimate persecution to the point of death so that we might be forgiven and receive the gift of new life. And so as we embark on this journey of Jesus' best sermon ever, pursuing his best life for us, uh, how do we do this? Like getting practical, what does this actually look like? Well, really, the only way to conclude is right where we started. We have to start and end with this reality. It is critical that we get these order of operations right, that it is always the Holy Spirit's work changing our hearts, which then causes us to choose to respond and change our mind, changing our direction, our behavior, all by the grace of God and the work of Jesus. As Oswald Chambers, again, rightly says, it is the Holy Spirit having his way within us to make us what he teaches us we should 
be. You see, if we miss this order of things, then the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, it, it will not feel like good news. It will not feel like good news from a, a good dad who wants what's best from you, but it will feel like, like a crushing indictment on you because you cannot pull it off. You see, Jesus, he did not come ultimately to make bad people better. Jesus, he certainly didn't come to make uh, religious people feel, uh, you know, all, like revel in their own self-righteousness. Jesus, he did not come to give us a, a list of do's and don'ts to ultimately, as Oswald Chambers says, just to tantalize us and torment us because we can't live up to it. But Jesus, he came to turn things upside down only for us to discover that it is actually right side up as he came and broke through our sin and separation. He came to forgive and save. He came to give life to the dead. He came to give us a heart of flesh in place of our heart of stone through an invitation. An invitation to repent and to follow him and his kingdom in our lives. If we surrender. If we surrender to the king of kings and his kingdom. And so in this 13-week sermon series, it really all comes down to week one. It starts with week one that will determine whether the next 12, uh, you know, go well for us, you could say, because it really is about this bottom line, this one question for all of it. Are you surrendered? Are you surrendered? Are you surrendered to the king and his kingdom ways it is the first question we ask in this journey with Jesus, but it's not one, again, we get to check off. It is a question that we have to ask every day. I have to ask it every day. Okay, today, am I surrendered to the king and the kingdom, and I'm gonna fail, and I'm gonna fall, and I'm not gonna get it right every time, but I'm gonna keep trusting the Holy Spirit to do his way and to begin to continue over and over again, work on my heart so that I can find the forgiveness and repentance and get up once again by his power to live his direction in the way that he's called us to do that. And so to help us answer this question, not just on a one-time checkmark kind of deal, but every day and throughout the next 13 weeks, uh, on your way into the service, you received, uh, hopefully, one of these best sermon ever guides. And this is kind of a take-home thing that has a few questions in it to allow you to reflect uh, on, on a number of things. But really, the question behind all these questions is, are you surrendered? Are you ultimately Surrendered to, I don't need that, it's okay, uh, to the king and his kingdom. You know, as I think about this idea, um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of uh, things that we, surrender might be a strong word, but we, you could say pledge our allegiance to in our lives. There's a lot of things we're aligned with and we commit to and we get wrapped up in. Uh, and a lot of the time, the way in which we communicate that allegiance uh, in, our, in our whole world, it seems, it's, like a, it's kind of like a shared language is through a flag, you know, most obviously is a flag that represents your country that you, you know, pledge your allegiance to. But we also recognize that people use flags to represent their allegiance to all kinds of ideologies, maybe a group of people or even a political candidate. Uh, many of us use flags to uh, align ourselves with a particular collegiate or professional sports team. But as I think about what we're doing today, and as I think about what you could say Flag represents Jesus' kingdom of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, then the one flag that I would choose 
for us to say that we find our alignment and our allegiance to is this one. It is simply a white flag. A white flag of surrender. Or as Jesus would say, humble surrender surrender in meekness. To say that the master is in control and I surrender everything to him. Hear me. Jesus is gonna challenge our thinking. But the only way we're gonna have ears to hear is if it starts with a heart of surrender. And so as you go today, um, we have on your way out uh, little white flags to serve as a reminder as to the starting place for all the places we're gonna go over the next 13 weeks in this sermon series. And so in the West Auditorium as well as in the East Auditorium, there are some baskets as you go. And I would encourage you to take that. Um, You can use it as uh, maybe a bookmark in your guide to kind of a reminder every day as to what you need to kind of have as a mindset and a posture towards whatever it is. Uh, Someone last night's like, I know exactly where this needs to go. It was in their car. Uh, Because they know that's where they needed to be surrendering. They're dry, just whatever that be. Wherever it will help serve and remind you ultimately of the king and his kingdom and his kingdom ways. Uh, With that, maybe as you take this, uh, yeah, you understand like this is a daily thing, but maybe you haven't waived it for the first time. Maybe you say, you know, I need to accept that what I'm hearing, I'm hearing this in my heart, not just my ears. And God is, Holy Spirit is convicting my heart and I want to repent. I want to change my mind. I want to change my direction. I need some direction in what that looks like. And we would be honored to have that conversation about what that looks like in your life as you embark on this journey. And so uh, as you go and you grab your flag, if you want to make your way back down to the front of this room, I'll be here. I'll be honored to talk with you in the East Auditorium. Pastor Jonathan's there. Be honored to talk with you there. Or of course, if you're online, your online host can help you take those next steps. But then one more person I want to recognize in the room is, again, for those who, like, you came. Like, I, I've met some first-timers here today, and uh, at the invitation of another, or just, you know, said it was time to check out church, even know this is what we were doing. And you're checking things out, and you just might be real honest and be like, I appreciate what we're talking about, but I'm not there yet. Man, I'm, I'm more proud of you than just about anybody in the room. To just be able to say, hey, I'm, I had the faith to step into the room, to not even know what I was placing my faith in. Keep it up, keep coming back, keep showing up. And again, if we can help you with that, we would be honored to have more than just a one-way conversation. So I can catch you after the service or we're here all week, you can reach out to the church. We would be honored to be part of that journey for when that day comes that we're trusting that you're ready to grab that flag and to surrender your life, realizing that your way, it doesn't work. That it is death, it is a dead end, but that God's way is truly life and life to the full, the best way of life. Because here's what's true for every single one of us. We all have a king that's ruling our kingdom. The question is, what is gonna be our next step? What is gonna be your next step to discover more of what God's kingdom looks like in your life? For, as the Lord's Prayer says, his kingdom, all by his power, Holy Spirit around us, and ultimately, to God be the glory, as it says. Amen and amen.